So as, uh, as Pastor Wayne is gone, that kind of lays it upon me to uh, come up here. Not lays it upon me. I get the privilege of coming up here and speaking and being able to bring God's word to you and study it for myself at a more vigorous intensity than on an everyday <laughs> study, probably. And uh, it's, really, it's really been good. We've been talking in the elders about discipleship and uh, just different things about the church. And so as Wayne said that he was going to be gone this month, I was thinking, what are some things about the church? Where could we look to know about the church? And uh, the book of Ephesians is a great place to look. So we're going to look there this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. But uh, as you turn there, let's pray and just uh, dedicate our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for what you've been doing in this church. We see these little children growing up and uh, hearing your word and uh, teaching it even to others and they're amongst themselves. God, we just ask that you would make us like little children, hearing your word, understanding it, craving for it, that we would just continue in these things and grow up into you, into Christ. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to come together with other believers, to hear your word, to not only hear it, but to act on it, to see our lives changed as a result of your spirit working in us. Just guide our time now this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we are in Ephesians 4, talking about the church, a lot of times when a person joins an organization, any sort of organization, you really obligate yourself to live in a certain way or to follow the guidelines, the rules, according to the standards of that group, let's say. Now, we often accept their aims, the goals, what's going to go on. Their standards become our own standards. This is who we want to be. We're, let's say we're part of the Boy Scouts. We are going to be a Boy Scout, and people are going to know that we are Boy Scouts as a result. You know, they, they obligate themselves to promote those goals of the club and to abide by its standards. You know a Boy Scout when you see a Boy Scout. You look around, okay, that's a Boy Scout. You even know them whether they're wearing their uniform or not a lot of times by the way they act and what they're doing and their involvement with other things. On the Boy Scouts website, I happened to go on there the other day, they said their uniform is also very important, and it plays an essential role in creating a sense of belonging. A lot of these organizations and what we get involved with is so that we belong to something, we're part of something that's not just our, ourself, but it's a larger scale, the grander scheme of things. And uh, many people, they'll almost go to any lengths to uh, qualify for acceptance in a social club, athletic team, maybe a fraternal order, or some other group. You know, even two months ago, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but there was a fraternity in uh, Penn State, and one of the young men there died during a hazing event. And, you know, the re news report said that many of the people, they appear to be on the same page, everything that they're doing, and if there's any dissension, it's pushed down. No one wants to be out of the norm and be rejected. No one wanted to be rejected by the fraternity at all. And as a result, a young man lost his life because of it. As I think about that, I, I find it interesting to think about the amount of effort that we put into being accepted. We do all sorts of things. I could list them off, but I won't. It might be embarrassing what we do to be accepted, even, even myself. So we'll keep going here. But uh, have you ever noticed, though, that sometimes in the church as a whole, such loyalties to standards, such loyalties to the obligations, or even the fear of, being, of exclusion, they don't operate with the same amount of force. There's a different ideology that comes in as we head to the church. If you were to do a survey of the American church, you'd find that many Christians were really glad to have the blessings and the privileges of the gospel and even the promises, but there's less of a sense of responsibility to what's going on there and conforming to his standards and obeying its commands. Now, you know, there's kind of a swashbuckling Pirates of the Caribbean feeling that says, you know, God's word, it's more what you'd call guidelines. So, 
but these are just not modern problems, and they're not guidelines. We're going to look at these in a little bit. The church in Ephesus, even as we see written here, they seem to have had a similar mindset, or maybe the problems that were going to develop there, enjoying the blessing of God without obedience to God. You know, and if the problem didn't exist, we don't know fully if it uh, already existed, but Paul knew that the problem was probably going to expose itself, show its head in the life of believers, because as sinners, we send a, we turn to other things. We tend to follow off the beaten path instead of following God's word. It's easy for us to be controlled by sin instead of be controlled by God's word. And Paul knew that right from the beginning. So in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, you know, Paul really sets forth the believer's position, who he is in Christ. What are these blessings? What are these privileges? What are the promises of salvation? And in the final three chapters, he gives the family rules for being a child of God. It's uh, so that they can live out salvation in sync with the Father, with his will and to his glory. So starting here in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to find really the practical response in light of God's great work in our salvation. And when we receive Christ as a Savior, we kind of talked about this a little bit in uh, Sunday school this morning, but we become citizens of his kingdom. He's done the work. He is the one calling us. Mel even mentioned, you know, it was before the foundations of the earth, as Ephesians talks about in Ephesians 1, verse 3. It says, even as he chooses us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. That's kind of the start of all that Paul is talking about. What God has done in our lives requires our response that uh, is fitting for what God has. God really expects conformity within the church, not conformity to one another, which we'll find out in a minute, but conformity to God's word and his will. It's not a forced legalistic conformity of external rules and regulations, but it's an inner conformity of our heart to the holiness, to the love and the will of our father. And he wants his children to honor him as his father. So here in Ephesians 4.1, it's really talking about what that looks like in the church. It's a, a blueprint for the church, you might say, from salvation to sanctification. We see that right doctrine is essential to right living, as Paul always tells about these things. He um, has written many other books in the New Testament, and even as he wrote to Galatia or Rome, he starts out with what is the doctrine, what are the teachings of God for our life as believers, and then he ends up the book, how do we respond to that, what are our actions, and how do they fill in? We saw a little bit of that from Romans 12 that Ethan read. I pointed up to the screen just because... The reference was on the screen, nothing else. But uh, as we think about these things, that was the basis, and now we see the outcome of it. So let's look here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some in the back if you would need one. Someone could raise their hand, and we got uh, people back there that can hand them out. But uh, if you do have one, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, let's read this together. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. By grace... But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. 
and verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As we look there at those verses, hopefully you read through them. Maybe you'll read ahead and made a little before. I was talking to someone the other day and they, they admitted reading ahead from what pastor is pe- preaching on in Matthew. I do the same thing. So you're free to read ahead a little bit or read behind. Look at this in, in its context. But these 16 verses really lay out what God has as the foundation for the church, what builds the church, how God has developed the church, what his expectation is for the church. It's that blueprint, as I mentioned earlier, from salvation to sanctification. It clearly lays out what God has done for our salvation and what God desires for his church. Now, it talks to each of us, really, as individual members, and then all of us as the visual expression of God here on this earth, the church. So as I read through this, one question came to mind, really, from the, from the get-go. There's a lot more questions than one, but one overarching question. What does God require of my walk for to be considered worthy of his salvation? Right there in verse 1. What does God require of my walk for it to be considered worthy of his salvation? Well, as we read through all that, I would say that the end goal is that we must grow up in every way into Christ to mature manhood and womanhood. You know, both the individual and the church, they're both involved in this process. It's not just me on my own over here in the corner. It's not Larry over there in Georgia or Tate. It's not uh, others just uh, wherever they're at. But it's us together and as individuals being grown up in every way into Christ. So as we see these verses, let's see what God has required of his church. Ephesians 4.1 I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, he gives the briefest bio as he begins his directions to the church. And it's interesting what he uses to talk about himself as he's urging the church to examine its lifestyle, as he's urging the church to go out and follow the call of God. Right from the beginning, he throws in a glimpse of the price that it may require. He is a prisoner of the Lord. This doesn't just, just mean his commitment to the Lord. It does cover that and his commitment in any place, whether he's in prison or not. But it also, the fact that he is in prison, literally, and as he writes to these people, be, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Here he is in prison, writing to fellow believers to step up their game, you might say, to take on what he is now lacking. As he's in prison, he can no longer proclaim the same way. He can no longer visit all these nations, all these cities, but he writes to them to encourage them. He was actually in prison because of his nonstop proclamation of the gospel of God, the good news. It's like what we're studying in Matthew, the good news of Jesus Christ, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and what he did here on earth during that time. From this vantage point, he urges, he begs, he implores the church to consider their walk, Paul wasn't giving guidelines to the Ephesians, but divine standards for the church. Without them, they couldn't live in a way that 
really represented themselves as being children of God, and he knew that. And uh, he was a great example to follow in those ways. The believer who walks in a manner worthy of the calling with which he has been called, it's one whose day-to-day life resembles a child of God and who's a fellow heir with Christ Jesus. As I wrote those words down, that's a a big step. I might need to step down from here and let someone else speak because all of us fall fall far short if we examine what we're doing or thinking about our day-to-day interactions, our thoughts, our private lives, whatever they happen to be. Is my day-to-day life resembling a child of God and a follow, fellow heir with Jesus Christ? But that's what Paul is saying, even as he's in prison. He's saying, look at what your life is. Walk in a manner worthy. So there is hope. He expects that this is going to happen. It's not something that is impossible or something that is way out there. But he says, this is something that you can do as a church. And the churches did it. We see it in Ephesus. We see it in Philippians. He commends the churches for what they've done, partnering with him in the gospel. And we see the completion of his commands here. So as Paul communicated the command, what are we supposed to do to start a worthy walk? Sometimes we hear the words and like, that sounds great. We're all geared up. We're running. We've just had a pep rally. All right, now what do we do? What are we supposed to do? And everybody falls away slowly because there's no direction. There's nothing happening. But Paul continues in verses two and through three here. It says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, followed up with eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You know, that first word humility, that's really where it all starts. That's a foundation of our walk. It uh, has to do with our sight of ourself and the sight of God. Are we humble before him, recognizing that we are sinful and not just prideful, recognizing that what he has done is for our good and not against us? These characteristics really form a progression from humility and the exercise of that. It leads to the practice of the following, which leads to the following. Neither the Romans or the Greeks had any word for humility. It was something that was completely foreign, abhorrent to them to think of humility. They were all about, you know, Hercules sort of, guys. You're going around, you're doing Olympics, you're, you're showing off, you're in the um, ring, whatever you're doing, humility was not on the top of your list. It was looked down on as something you would not do. So they didn't have a word for it. Apparently, the word was coined here by Paul. This is one of the first times we see it. And uh, he describes the quality that uh, no other word was available to describe. Humility, it's really a foundational Christian virtue We can't even begin to please God without humility. Just as our Lord could not have pleased his father, had he not willingly emptied himself and he took on the form of a bondservant, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's where we see what humility is. Going from a point of high position to a point of lowly esteem, not just for the sake of it, for the sake of God and following his will, for obedience to God. If Jesus walked in humility while he was here on earth, how much more should we walk in humility? 1 John 2 states, you know, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So the other three words here define that humility. What does that walk look like as we walk in humility? The fruit of humility, you might call it, or even the fruit of the spirit, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. All of those describe what the spirit does within us, within the church. Gentleness describes the way people approach each other, how we interact. You know, in the church, gentleness, first of all, keeps problems from happening. But second, gentleness keeps problems from getting worse. If you were to look in the book of Proverbs, verse 15, 1, 
chapter 15, verse 1, it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's the opposite of gentleness. The harsh word stirs up anger, but the gentle answer turns away wrath. Think about safety officers. They're in the news all the time. They're constantly trained to de-escalate the situation. That's the, uh, the buzzword on, on the news, de-escalate the situation. And uh, they're not out to shoot offenders or spray anybody with pepper spray. That's not their total goal here. They want problems to go away, to de-escalate, from move from the point of you know, way up here, some hypertension, to a much more calm, gentle location. Ideally, they want to talk calmly with someone until the problem's been resolved. That's the goal. Some people walk around life as though they're looking for someone to spray with pepper spray. I don't know if you know of anybody in your mind, but uh, that doesn't quite fit in with this worthy walk that Christ talks about, that Paul has written about. Jesus was tough when he needed to be, but he was marked by gentleness. He was tough when it came to disobeying God and mocking God and who he was, but he was gentle in all of his other ways. Even people in sin, he was so gentle. The woman who the, the Pharisees were going to stone, he makes a line on the sand and said, you know, any of you who has not sinned can be the first to stone her. And uh, in his gentleness, he brings out her salvation. That is part of our humility and gentleness. Patience here describes the virtue of overlooking offenses, overlooking them and even shortcomings. Gentleness is how we respond outwardly to trouble, but patience is how we respond innerly. Sometimes we can hold ourselves back, respond in a very gentle manner, and our emotions are surging inside. Everything is going on. Here it talks about patience. Patience, a virtue of overlooking offenses and shortcomings. They're both fruits of the Spirit, as I mentioned earlier. If you're a believer, you don't really have a choice about receiving them as fruits. The Spirit is at work within us to bring love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. But we want to display them in our life, and God desires us to display them, to work at displaying these in our lives, to practice them as we practice humility. In Proverbs 19, again, it says, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. As we think about those who are looking for someone to spray with their pepper spray. Some people are looking for ways to offend, but the Bible tells us that overlooking offenses is glorious, as we see here in Proverbs. Patience. The next one talks about bearing with, bearing with someone in love. The final characteristics that we see, it has to do with the ability to put up with others and their differences. That's the actual Greek translation to put up with. If you were to look at a commentary or anything, those are the words that would be there. But oftentimes we kind of bearing with makes it sound a little easier, a little softer. But we do. We want to put up with them. Sometimes we have to put up with people for a long time. You know, <laughs> we all have people in our lives like that. All right, I'm gonna, I'll put up with this one more time. I'll put up with this again. You know, Jesus' disciples are like, how many times do we have to forgive this person? And he says, what? 70 times 7. Just continually, continually be forgiving of that person. You're not putting up with sin. You're not allowing blatant sin to continue and things like that. But normally it's little personality clashes, issues that uh, the way we do it, how we've learned to do something. Even in our own marriages, we have different cultures that we bring to it. And so we go about stuff in a different way. And it grind, can grind on you. It can affect you. But here it says, bearing with one another in love, putting up with those things. And our sinful nature often despises those personalities opposite of our own, or we get impatient with different viewpoints. But even though we don't always see things the same, we're one body made up of many parts, each part with its own purpose. 
That is what we read from Romans, as we saw earlier this morning. Romans 12, 5 through 6, it says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. It finishes off. So as we think about those that uh, we're trying to put up with, realize they've been given gifts differently than us. They have a different purpose in our body than we do that a lot of times we cannot fulfill. We might think we can fulfill it or do it even better than them, but God has established us according to his grace that he's given us these gifts. So as we think through this tolerant love, we might call it bearing with one another, putting up with one another, it's for the sake of unity as the next verse finishes out. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. A walk characterized by humility, by gentleness, by patience and tolerance and love brings us together as a church. It's what makes a church a church. We had uh, one of the master seminary students, he did a review on Acton Faith Bible Church and he was here, he visited with us, he teaches here at the elementary school, some of the music, but he wanted to see what, what is it, how do people respond in the church, what are, what are things that people have said about Acton Faith Bible Church, and he did um, a report on all these things, and one of the things that came out from our church was love for one another. He and his wife felt it when they were here. He said that that was the, the largest comment that he got was people's love for one another. So we're doing well. The idea isn't that we're, we're all failing, we're doing a horrible job here, but uh, as Paul was even talking to the church, it's a continual reminder of what's happening. We were studying um, First Peter with the youth a couple of years ago, and it talks about that, he, you know, he's not telling them anything new that they don't already know. He's not continuing to give them new things, but he's teaching them one more time so that they will remember what he's taught, so that they will remember and continue thinking on these things. And that's what we're doing here this morning, hopefully. But we remember to be eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace, that we are continuing in love to do these things that uh, Paul has put forward, that God has set forth for his church. As we think about walking in unity of the spirit, spiritual unity, it's not something, and it cannot be something that's created by the church. It's already created by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's talking about unity of the spirit. Our unity we see here, though, is something which is given by the spirit, but it's also something we are urged to diligently maintain. Jack mentioned it this morning, he used the word synergetic, how we're the synergy between God and us working together for his purposes. We are called to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit has already created that unity within us, and uh, we are called to be a part of it. We have a role in whatever the unity of the Spirit, whatever he's doing, and the bond of peace. We have this role that our gathering stays intact. How do we do this? I think there's a couple of answers here. First, we have to realize what Paul explains through his use of the word one in those next verses, verses four, five, and six. There's one body, there's one Spirit, just as you were called, with the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all and through all and in all. You might notice there's a repetition of that word one there, showing a little bit about this unity. The Jews and the Gentiles have been made into one man, as Paul talked about earlier in chapter two. There aren't many lords, but there's only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we all belong to him. There's one spirit who is the guarantee of our future blessing. There's one baptism that God has provided, one faith, one hope, and there's only one means of salvation. And that's all because there's only one God and Father. There's not all these different areas, all these different ways to salvation to God. There's only one. When we think about that, unity should be easy in the church because we're all one and the same in the body of Christ. And yet through our sin, somehow we continually need to be 
told and directed, and uh, as Paul is doing here, redirected back to unity. And the second answer about how we preserve peace only can, comes from understanding our oneness. In John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. How is the body of Christ recognized? It's by their love for one another. Nothing depicts unity like love. You know, in the next chapter of Ephesians, Paul writes in, in uh, chapter 5, he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one can ever, has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Ephesians 5, 28 through 30. We are all members of the one body of Christ. And because of our love, we don't hate our own flesh. We don't hate our own body, but we nourish and cherish it. When you love the body of Christ, the church, you show that you're a part of it. You show that you're unified. Now, someone might confuse unity with uniformity, and that's easy to do. You, those two words are very similar, and the ideas can be very similar. Sometimes we think, oh, let's all be of one mind, of like mind of Christ. But yet, as I look across here, we're not all of the same mind. We have different likes and preferences and the way we do things and uh, all of that. Verse 7 here makes that contrast in Paul's teaching so that even with great unity, our Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, God, God's given different gifts so that we are, have different roles and functions in the church. We are one body with all these differences and yet we're unified. He moves from the church as a whole, which is to walk in unity, to the specific individuals who are supposed to promote unity through the unique gifts. So the essence of the gospel is not what, it, what men should do for God, but what he's done for men. In the New Testament, like the Old Testament, contains many commands and requirements, many standards to be met and obligations to be, be fulfilled. But the importance of those things are that they're not really the heart of Christianity. That's what God desires for us. They're simply what God calls and enables us to do for his glory in response to what he's already done for us and through us in our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say every New Testament book teaches what Christ has done for the believer. And in every New Testament exhortation, it's built on that foundation of God's gracious provision through the Savior. He gave the supreme gift of grace, and his children are to respond to that gift of grace in obedience. That's where this next verse comes in, Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. The sum of this is that God gives both the grace and the faith to energize whatever gifts he gives to the full intent of its purpose. As we're given gifts, they're not just to sit and rot. They're not just to, to be put on the shelf for some later use. He gives these gifts and he energizes these gifts and he is the one who's allowing us to use them. In First uh, Peter again, it says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The believer's gifts aren't determined by our preferences, by our inclinations, our natural abilities, our merits, or any other really personal consideration, but solely on God's sovereign and gracious will. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're gifted according to his plan, his purpose, and his measure. He's given the body what it needs, when it needs it, and through the people through whom he has chosen to give it. Christians are not assembly line productions with every unit being exactly like every other unit, as we've already talked about. So really, no Christian can replace another Christian in God's plan. He has his own individualized plan for each of us as we think through what he's talking about here. 
One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills, it says in 1 Corinthians. Paul wants to make sure that we know that these gifts are being given. But not only that, that he has the right to give these gifts. As he continues here in verses 8 through 10, it looks like all of a sudden he's out of the blue. He's talking about Christ's ascension, his descension to earth, and his reascension to heaven. But he uses this verse from Psalm 98, I believe, to, or I mean 68, verse 18, to show that God has every right to give us these gifts. He has every right to control and uh, guide his church. He has every right to work in the lives of believers, to follow after his will. It says here, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill up all things. As Paul's talking here, we could go into depth about this, but I think we'll continue on because there's, there's just a little more before we end our, our sermon today. But the phrase, when he ascended into high, portrays Christ as triumphant, returning from battle, returning from conquering sin and death here on earth. And he's back in the glory of the heavenly city where the trophies of his great victory, his captives are with him. In his crucifixion, as in his resurrection, Jesus Christ conquered Satan, sin and death, as I said. And by that great victory, he led that host of captives who were once prisoners to the enemy and who are now returned to God, to the people whom they belong. Upon arriving in heaven, he gave gifts to, the, to men, like a triumphant conqueror distributing the goods of the, to his subject, the spoils from his conquest. So Christ takes the trophies he has won and distributes them in his kingdom. Those are the gifts he has given to men. After his ascension came with all the gifts empowered by the one spirit. When the Savior was exalted on high, it said he sent his spirit. And with the coming of the spirit, he also gave gifts to the church. Paul says all of that in this one little verse. His idea is he transmits God's, Christ's ability to give gifts. He has come to earth. He conquered all these things. He is able to give gifts, to fill all, to make everything full with his glory. So he gave gifts for the church, specific gifts. Here in verse 11, he says he gave gifts to the apostles. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and building up of the body of Christ. We saw that he wants us to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. And then he gave gifts specifically to help us walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Apostles and prophets, we think about them as those that have come before. They laid the foundation. The apostles were there as Christ was with them. They were in his, in his sight, in his presence. And he, they proclaimed the word of God and uh, laid the foundation for the church. As Paul even said in Ephesians 2.20. Let me just flip back there. It says, it was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So these apostles and prophets, they're included here to show that God has used them already in the church. They were to lay the foundation. They received and declared the revelation of God. And they confirmed the word through signs and wonders as the early church was being established. But as you see throughout the New Testament, they don't completely fade away. We hear about the apostles and prophets but as the church continued to grow, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers were added to them to continue the work of the apostles and prophets, to continue the work of proclaiming the word of God, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. From the start of Pentecost, the church has been indebted to the apostles, through whom Christ established the fullness of the New Testament doctrine, those uniquely called and empowered by God, they're a record of God's final revelation as he revealed it to them. 
though in the prophets, though they didn't usually receive direct revelation from God, they were greatly instrumental in building up and strengthening the early church. Both of those have passed from the scene, and they've laid their hands on and sent out those new members of the church, the pastors, the shepherds, the evangelists. As we think about these things and how they work out in God's plan, we see them even today. The evangelists, we see shepherds, we see teachers. Some of your Bibles might say pastors there. And uh, I'm going to use the word shepherd because the word in the Greek is more leans on that. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, let's just look at those three. The work of the evangelist is to preach and to explain the good news of salvation to Jesus Christ. This was one of the gifts given to the church that others would hear and know. As you look in the book of Acts, it continually talks about there were many added to their number that day. You know, 300 were added to that number that day. 3,000 were added to that number that day. There were those who were the evangelists. They were proclaiming God's word, making known the gospel of the Son of God. Philip demonstrated that an evangelist doesn't have to be a pastor with 10 suits who's got, you know, 10 different sermons and ready to hit the road and go out and preach. He went and he proclaimed one message. That was all he was given before God took him to glory. But through that message, the church still benefits hearing what Philip did as he witnessed and uh, gave a testimony of God to the people of Israel, even to the point of death as Christ had done and as Paul, the writer of this, soon goes to. New Testament evangelists, they were missionaries in the church. They were church planters, much like the apostles, but without the miraculous gifts. They went where Christ was not named among the people, and, and they gave them faith in the Savior. They showed what the truth was from the Word of God. These gifted men were uniquely designed and given to the church to reach the lost of the saving gospel. There's many that are here that are do that, that can proclaim, proclaim God's Word without a problem. Some of us are like, mm, yeah, maybe not, maybe not today, How about I'll try tomorrow. But then there's others that are always eagerly out. They can proclaim no matter what. Whatever comes to mind, whether it's online, whether it's face-to-face, they've got to answer just like that, ready to be proclaimed. Those are the evangelists that God has given to the church for the sake of proclaiming that gospel. Then there's shepherds and teachers. As I mentioned, the original Greek here is it was really shepherd. It emphasizes the care, the protection, the leadership of the man of God for the flock. Teachers have to do with the primary function of the shepherds, but teachers can also be on their own. While all shepherds are teachers, not all teachers have to be shepherds. And, uh, but they go hand in hand. They work together for the purpose of the church and for the purpose of God building up his church. In the simplest possible terms, Paul sets forth God's progressive plan for his church. Using these men, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, they're there to build up the church, to allow them to grow. And it says they are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. They equip for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the church. There we see a continuation of this blueprint that God has laid out. The building up of the redeemed involves really a twofold objective, which Paul identifies here in verses 13 through 15. Read that, or 13 and 14. Let's read that together. Until we attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul identifies these that are gifted to give the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, out of which flow spiritual maturity, sound doctrine, a loving testimony, as it calls for here. When believers are properly taught, when they faithfully do the work of the ministry, and when the body is thereby built up in spiritual maturity, 
The unity of the faith, it's an inevitable result. Sometimes we think of that word faith as just our belief in God, but here the unity of the faith is all-encompassing. The unity of everything that we have as the church, what we believe, what God has done, what Christ has done for us, and who we are now as his children. Talking about our position in Christ and also our role as his kids. Paul's not talking about salvation only, but it's that full knowledge, like I said. We see that this unity and knowledge leads to spiritual maturity and maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's as though we were walking just as Christ walked, as we said in 1 John. God's great desire for his church is that every believer, without exception, come to be like his son, walking in maturity. The church is the world in the world is Jesus Christ in the world. It's the only way they see him here on earth. We think about this next little section that I read there, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. I'll mention a couple of little ones. I don't think they're here today. We think about Jace and William. We see them in the back. They're running around here and there. And they're cute and all, but our, our desire isn't for them to only stay at that point, to only stay little children and cute. I see Nathaniel thinks, yes, they should be. But, <laughs> but uh, we want them to grow up. Any of us who have had children, we want them to grow up. Come on, you can understand me now. Talk, I can understand you. Let's, let's keep moving. Let's progress. Let's continue in this growth. And God has the same desire for his children his spiritual children, that we grow up. We don't just stay infants. We don't just stay, you know, thrown, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Children are, are great for being gullible. We can, you play tricks on them and things like that, tell jokes, you know, and they, they miss the whole thing, whereas adults were over here snickering and, and uh, enjoying it. But that's not what God wants us to be as a church. We want to be mature. We want to not just be making jokes about each other under, <laughs> under our breath for those who don't understand, but building up one another so that we're all to that point of understanding. We all have unity in the faith. We all have unity in the knowledge of God and can work toward that. The Christian who is properly equipped and mature, he's no longer a child tossed here and there. He's no longer thrown about or carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's so easy to get caught up in things like this. Just on uh, television the other day, my boss, who I do air conditioning with, he said he, he watched this guy say, I can see you out there. I see you. You have a back problem. Send your money. Send your money here, and I will heal your back problem. It's no problem. It's just a $100 gift, and your back problem will be healed. He goes on. He continues. I see someone out there, someone out there who's in a, who's in a need for finances. If you just send $100 this way, we will help. We will pray to God, and your finances will be healed. He's saying all these things. These would be human cunning, we call these. People are easily swept in by them. You, you see people that, that follow after that. But it's guided by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The first human cunning talks about us as men. Deceitful schemes talks about what the devil is doing, what his work is and involved in that. But in direct contrast to being tossed and carried away, we end this passage in verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way. I about named the sermon, grow up already, but I thought that was a little, little over the top because <laughs> uh, I'm in the same boat here. We're all to grow up in any way. So grow up in every way into him who is ahead, into Christ. We're supposed to grow up in every way. The spiritually equipped church whose members are sound in doctrine and mature in the thinking and living, it's a church that will reach out in the love to proclaim the saving gospel God does not give us knowledge. He doesn't give us understanding. He doesn't give us gifts just to keep them, but they're to share. They're to give. He does not equip us to sit around, but to serve. 
in order to do the Lord's work of service and building up and expanding the body of Christ. You know, during my lifetime, during many of your lifetimes, there have been seminars, conferences, books, programs, and even special, you know, organizations devoted exclusively to teaching about church growth and how to grow your church. They give principles and methods for all of this. And many of the efforts are helpful. It's not like it's, it's bad, but only to the extent that they're consistent with the principle that Paul teaches here in Ephesians 4, 12 through 16. Here is the most succinct form in God's plan by which the church produces church growth. Since the Lord said, <coughs> excuse me, since the Lord said, I will build my church in Matthew it's obvious that the building must be according to his plan. This blueprint, it says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. In verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. The proper working of each individual part recalls the importance of each believer's gift. The growth of the church is not a result of clever methods, but of every member of the body fully using his gifts in close contact with other members of the body. Christ is the source of the life and the power and the growth of the church. That's where we see it. It's, he facilitates that through each believer's gifts and the ministry. He's, he's the one that is the joint, really, that's touching each believer, holding us together. The power in the church flows from the Lord through the individual believers and the relationships between believers as we relate with one another, as we share our gifts with one another, as we put up with one another even, God is at work building us up where we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Where his people have close relationships of genuine spiritual maturity, God works. When they're not intimate, when they're far apart, when there's dissension, when we're not faithful with our gifts, God can't work. God is not looking for creativity. He's even ingenuity or cleverness, but for willing and loving obedience. Paul was a man who had that willing and loving obedience as he's in prison for it. He called the church in Ephesus to do the same, to follow, to walk in a manner worthy. Let's go back to that question I started at the beginning of the passage. What does this God require of my walk for it to be considered worthy of his salvation? We have to grow up in every way into Christ to mature manhood and womanhood. That can be hard. That can be something maybe we don't want to do. I've been often accused of being immature. You may be thinking that. I see Greg smiling right there. No. <laughs> but as we think about this, we are to grow up. We're supposed to move to a point of immaturity in our spiritual life, to maturity, to continue in that, to encourage one another. So we're building one another up, to use our gifts for that purpose so that when we are done, we will be complete in Christ. We are built up through him and for him. It's uh, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And we are the body of Christ, making his name known here on earth, making his name known in our community, making his name known even amongst ourselves so that we hear and proclaim God continuously so that maybe at the end of our life, we will be in prison as a result because we have been so consistent in our proclamation of God, so consistent in our understanding of his word and sharing it with others. That's our, our hope as elders, that's what we pray about with one another. That's our hope for you. And I hope that's your hope for the church as you are each one a member held together by Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, this blueprint of your church. We ask that you'd not just allow us to read these things and think of them as simply guidelines, but that we would recognize that these are 
your commands, your desire, that our life would be worthy of the salvation that you've provided, that our interaction would be worthy of the spirit that you have in us, that our teaching, our talking, our words, everything that we're doing would reflect back on who you are, and that as a result, the world would see you here through our church, through the church at large, through the the other churches in the community, that uh, we would be proclaiming your word Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you've given. We thank you for how you have established your church and how you've put it in place. We just ask that you'd help us to be faithful in these things and that we would follow you walking in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.